of all the years I've been covering this team, which is now more than 50, what's the moment that stands out? It's Minnesota. That moment when the game ends and the confetti starts to fall and you see up on the scoreboard the thing blinking saying Super Bowl champs Philadelphia Eagles, that yeah, was pretty special. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod County. We are back after another several month hiatus between episodes. I promise we are trying to get back on a regular schedule. COVID again, just making it tough to get people in, get people in safely. But hopefully, cases are dropping, things are getting a little better, we're going to start doing some more regular episodes, and hopefully with some uh, some pretty big guests, hoping to get some big fish in, and we've got one pretty big fish in here today, Ray Didinger, who if you are a Philadelphia sports fan, you should know from his 25 years of print journalism covering Philadelphia sports, his 12 books on sports. Uh, and his years with NFL Films, 94 WIP, Talking Eagles on the Radio, uh, and NBC Sports Philadelphia. Uh, but Ray is actually here today to talk about his sports journalism career, but also to talk about his new play. And that is the Delaware Connection for this episode. The first performance for the Delaware Theater Company since the pandemic began will be Ray's play, Tommy and Me, which looks at the relationship that Ray has with Eagles legend Tommy McDonald. So sit back, enjoy a great discussion about Philadelphia sports with one of the all-time great sports journalists and NFL Hall of Famer, Ray Dinger. Welcome to another episode of Pod County. I'm Kyle Grantham, your host, joined today by Brian Cunningham, Newcastle County's Strategic Communications Director and Philadelphia sports legend, NFL Hall of Famer, Ray Dinger. Also with us to ask a few questions, Newcastle County Executive Matt Meyer will be stopping in, as he likes to do. And Matt Silva also joining us today in the background, hanging in the wings from the Delaware Theater Company. And that is because... Tommy and Me is is kicking off the Delaware Theater Company's season. This is the, their opening show. Delaware Theater Company is back. They told COVID to get on out of here. And Tommy and Me tickets, they start at $29. They can be purchased by visiting DelawareTheater.org right now. And that that's honestly one of the big reasons we're talking to Ray. Mm-hmm. Ray heavily involved in this show. So, Brian, hello. How you doing? Good. Well, let's be honest. The show wouldn't be here if it weren't for Ray Didinger. That's right. That's right. And Ray, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So, I guess let's first let's talk about the show a little bit. Tell me about Tommy and Me. Uh, it's um, it's a show about my relationship with Tommy McDonald, the former great Eagles player, Hall of Famer. How we met when I was uh, a nine-year-old boy. Uh, hanging around the Eagles training camp up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, how we met, how Tommy kind of adopted me or I adopted him or we adopted each other. But we developed a relationship then in that first training camp when he was just a rookie and I was just a nine-year-old kid with an autograph pad. And it just grew over time. And it's one of those kind of life coming full circle stories that it evolves from those days when he's he's the great football player and I'm the hero worshiping kid and then it evolves into a relationship years later where Tommy's a retired player and I'm a sports writer and I lead the campaign to try and get him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's kind of the, in a nutshell, that's kind of what the story's about. But it's, you know, it's something that I, 
I always thought that it was a great story. I always thought it was a, it's one of the most fun chapters of my life. And um, I always kind of wanted to tell it. I thought it was a great story I wanted to share with people. Because some people knew, but a lot of people didn't. And then it was just a matter of deciding what was the best way to tell it. And I decided, you know, why don't I, I've never written a play, but why don't I try it? And so I did, and Theater Exile picked it up. Joe Canuso directed it. We had four runs before COVID, and now Delaware Theater Company was uh, gracious enough to decide that when they were going to reopen for business this fall, they wanted to reopen with Tommy and me. So here we are. That is fantastic. You spent 25 years or so in, in print journalism before going into broadcast radio is that that that's correct? That's about right. Yeah, yeah. I got I got out of Temple in 1968. Got it, worked news at the Delaware County Daily Times for one year, then got hired by the Philadelphia Bulletin, where I went to sports, and then I worked at the Philadelphia Bulletin until 1980. Then I left the Philadelphia Bulletin, went to the Philadelphia Daily News. I was there until 1996, and then I got the terrific opportunity to go work in NFL Films. So I left newspapers at that point. So yeah, about 25 years in print, and then went to NFL Films. And so from NFL Films, you're, you're also doing radio, you're also doing uh, NBC Sports Broadcast stuff. What right. kind of inspired you to go back to writing and, and do a play? Never really stopped writing. I just stopped writing for print. But, I mean, my, probably my biggest job when I was at NFL Films was writing scripts. So I, got, I made that transition from print to TV and the screen at that time. And that was an adjustment. That, that was a lot more different than I thought it was going to be and, and more challenging in a lot of ways. But then writing a play is another whole, is another whole frontier totally. So you know, I went from print to the screen and then from the screen to the stage. And all, they're all different. They really are. Even though people would say, well, how different can it be? You're basically writing about the same thing. You're writing about football. And that's true. But... The the writing uh, the writing of it is very different. I, I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. It it proved to be a little more challenging than I expected. And at, also in there too, twelve books. Yes. So you're right. You never you never stopped writing. But every different kind of writing that you could do, you've pretty much done at this point. Yeah, I guess that's true. And they and they are very different. I I, I miss a little bit the daily print. I really do. I mean that. That was really all I wanted to be from the time I was a kid. I mean, I knew pretty early in school that I wanted to work for a newspaper. I wanted to be a writer. Of course, I grew up at a time when print was everything. I mean, everybody got the newspaper delivered. Everybody read the newspaper. You rode public transit. Everybody was reading a newspaper. Not true anymore. But at the time that I got into it, that was where everybody got their information. Nobody, you know, there, there certainly was no cable TV. There was no sports talk radio. I mean, people wanted to read about a game or learn about a team. They went to the newspaper. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I had the opportunity to do it for a good long time. Like I said, 25 years is pretty good. And there's sometimes, you know, I, like when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and I was in, in the building in Minneapolis and they won the Super Bowl, there was a part of me that said, boy, I want to sit down. I'd love to write this right now. <laughs> the, well, uh, the, the game store should have already been halfway written by then anyway, yeah. right? Yeah, so. yeah. But, you know, I had, the, I, I had the opportunity because we were doing TV, we were doing the post-game show. I had my opportunity to sort of say my piece. But there was a little part of me that kind of wished I had the old portable typewriter that I could have flipped the lid on and put the, cranked the paper in there and written the story. But uh, that's okay. I got to write it in the book. Do you, do you have a typewriter at home? Do you write on a typewriter? 
I actually, <laughs> I actually donated my <laughs> the typewriter that I used all those years. There's a guy trying to put together a Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. all sorts of artifacts, you know, baseball bats, football helmets, all that stuff. And he contacted me, and and they want to do a like a press box kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he asked if I had anything there, and I said, Well, I have this old beat up Olivetti typewriter. If you'd be interested, he said, Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's it's in a warehouse now, waiting for them to build the Hall of Fame. Take us. <laughs> Take us back to you and Tommy during the play writing process. And is this something that you pitch Mr. McDonald? And I could I could not see him anything but enthusiastic mm-hmm. about this idea because every interaction I've ever had with Tommy either began with a hug or ended with a hug and at least three handshakes in between that almost broke my hand. It's about right. <laughs> sounds sounds very <laughs> sounds very familiar. Yeah, he wasn't aware that I was writing the play. I never told him because he would have been on the phone with me eight times a day asking how <laughs> it was doing. So I and I also I, I, when I was writing it, I, I never knew if it was ever going to get produced. You know, I mean, I was going to write it and I was going to bring it to somebody in theater. And I mean, I don't know. I figured that, you know, I didn't know it was going to be any good. And I thought there was a chance they would just hand it back to me and say, you know, st- you know, stick to stick to the press box. OK, you're not a the- mm-hmm. you're not a playwright. So I never told Tommy that there was something in the works until it was finished and after I had brought it to the director, Joe Canuso, and he looked at it and said, I like this. Let's, let's, let's move on this. And th- at that point, when I knew it was actually finally going to become a reality, then I told Tommy. Uh, I said, you know, I've, I've written a play about... And Tommy had trouble. He couldn't quite... Gra- a play? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. How, how, I said, just, just trust me. I think it'll be fine. Come and see it. You can judge for yourself. And so he did. When we did the first public reading in the spring of 2016, I told him there's going to be this reading at Plays and Players Theater. He had no idea what a reading was. And I said, look, just come. Just you and Patty and the kids, just come, and then you'll, you'll, you'll get it. And they came that night, and it was, it was sensational. I mean, he was so excited. I mean, so excited that at one moment in the play where he's actually, when the actor is delivering his Hall of Fame speech, Tommy jumped out of his seat in the theater and ran up to the stage and, <laughs> and, led, and led the crowd in an E-A-G-L-E-S, so, sort of stopped the play in its tracks. Uh, uh, yeah. And that was when Joe Canuso said, You can't come I think, anymore. I, no, I think we have a play here. <laughs> okay. I think we have a play here. No, he didn't say you can't come to any more shows. Right? No, 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 no. But however, when, he, when we finally did actually stage the full play in all of its glory, and he and his whole family came back to see it on, on the real stage, he had his son on one side and his daughter on the other side, and they literally held him down during the performance so there wouldn't be a repeat of what happened at the reading. Wow, so come out to the Delaware Theater okay. Company. You don't County know what you're going to find County next ex- week. I have no idea. You don't know what County. rabid Eagle fans are going to do. County Executive Matt Myers joined us. Yeah, Welcome Thank County. you, Brian, and thank you, Ray. Uh, you know, on behalf of the people of the county, it's fantastic that you're doing this. It really means a lot to us in little old Delaware, I think, often. When I listen to WIP, they're quick to give their Delaware number and their, their Jersey number. They sometimes are slow to give the Delaware number. We mm-hmm. have a chip on our shoulder here. So we appreciate not only that you're coming down to do the performance here for us Rabbit Eagles fans uh, and others, but y- you're also spending time with us today. Thrilled to do it. I'm, I'm thrilled that Delaware Theater Company decided that when they reopened their doors, they wanted to reopen their doors with our play. I mean, we're just over the moon about that. And the, the theater is great, and the staff has been wonderful, and it's been a great run. I, I really, I, I encourage folks who, who haven't come out to see it yet to come out and see it. I think you'll have a real fun time. So you should come on down. It's, it's a human interest story. It's more than just an Eagle story. It's oh, open yeah. till October 
17th. Tickets are still available, and if you stay after the show, you can hear Ray talk with some of Philadelphia's greats, some sports greats and other greats. After and the Delaware show. greats. That's right, Delaware the, greats Delaware as well. Delaware greats involved, yeah. uh, Again, until October 17th, you can get tickets at, at Delaware Theater Company's website. I have a question for you, Ray. As someone who's, who's a pretty rabid Philadelphia sports fan, I, I imagine a lot of people listening Today, they know Jalen Hurts. Maybe mm-hmm. they know Carson Wentz, Donovan McNabb, Michael Vick. Kids like me, we still celebrate Michael Schmidt's birthday, September 27th. Sure. My house, greatest draft pick in human history, like the 36th round or whatever. Can you tell us a little bit about who Tommy McDonald is? Tommy McDonald is um, one, of the great, one of the great players in Eagles history, certainly top five. Uh, he was um, the... Part of his, a big part of his story was his size, that he overcame so much. Uh, he was only 5 feet 9, 170 pounds, which even in that era of football was small. But he was fierce, and he was fearless and tough as nails. I mean, he played 12 years in the NFL, only missed three games. And he was a great player at the University of Oklahoma back in the 50s when Oklahoma was the king of college football. He never lost a game in his whole college career. In three varsity seasons, they were 31-0, and and he was their best player. And then it came time to go to the NFL, and the pro, t- and the pro scouts looked at him and said, eh, yeah, too small. And so he stayed on the board till the third round. And the third round, the Eagles figured out, what do we got to lose? So they drafted him. And he came to Philadelphia and merely became the best receiver in franchise history. Uh, and if you look at his stats, I mean, I could sit here and give his stats forever, but I mean, the, the thing that really jumps out is uh, 66 touchdown catches in seven years. And in 1960, the year they won the world championship, he had 14 touchdowns in 13 games, if you count the championship game. And I, I think that, and one of, the th- one of the things that we talk about in the play is when that game was over and the Eagles had beaten the Green Bay Packers, the, the mighty Lombardi Packers, that was the only postseason game Lombardi ever lost was the 1960 championship game at Franklin Field. He went to five more championship games, won them all. The only team that beat him in the postseason was the 60 Eagles. And it beat him largely because of Tommy McDonald. And when the game, when the game was over uh, in the locker room, Lombardi said, told the reporters, if I had 11 Tommy McDonalds, I would win a championship every year, was what he said. And Tommy, um, Tommy always said that that was the greatest compliment he ever received coming from Lombardi. And when you consider that that Packer team had 10 Hall of Famers on it, <laughs> that he would say that about Tommy McDonald was pretty extraordinary. And that's one of the reasons why I knew how great he was, because as a kid I saw all of his games, and the evidence was right there. And that was one of the reasons that I, that I really felt, I really got very passionate about this quest to get him in the Hall of Fame. It sounds like he should have been a shoe in Should have been. You certainly would think so. I mean, at the time that he retired to the 1968 season, he was sixth all-time in catches, he was fourth all-time in yardage, and he was second all-time in touchdowns in NFL history. The only receiver that had more touchdown catches was the great Don Hudson, who had played in Green Bay back in the 30s. And Tommy was number two. And I really thought, well, as soon as he becomes eligible, he's going to go in. And he didn't. And he got, kept getting passed over and passed over and passed over. And finally, when I became a sports writer and I, became, I got in a position where I of some advocacy, you know, I began mounting a campaign to try and get him in the Hall of Fame. And how much of it had to do with the fact that he was my boyhood hero? Admittedly some. (laughs) But the other part of it was just uh, the simple fact of the matter that he belonged in the Hall of Fame. And it's, it still bothers me 
that he had to wait 30 years. It finally happened, but he had to wait 30 years for it. But we talked about that a lot, and he said, you know, I actually think that the wait made me appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also allowed the kids to grow up and my grandchildren to grow up, and, you know, they could enjoy it with me. So I, I could kind of see that side of it, but I know that 30-year wait was very painful for him. They say sports is a microcosm in some way of, of life, and I think it's great that we're talking a lot of now here in our county about sports coming back, and that's mm -hmm. you know evident, uh, evidence of society coming back and sure. people getting back to normal, and it's great that Delaware Theater Company coming back is coupled with, with you coming here. What do you think we learned from the play that we can take in our, in our daily lives about the struggle, your struggle, and Tommy's struggle to get in the Hall of Fame? I think that one of the things that, one of the really powerful messages in the play is, I'm trying to think of the best way of putting this, because it comes up, we do, we do a question and answer talk back after every show, then we take questions from the audience. And I think one of the, and it always comes up, every night, without fail, there's someone, usually it's a woman, and usually it's a wife, who was dragged into the theater by her husband who's wearing a Green Eagles jersey. And she will say, you know, I don't even like football. You know, I don't follow football. I never heard of Tommy McDonald. But this story touched me, you know, and it made me cry. And that, to me, is the first time someone said that, and that happened at the reading at Plays and Players back in 2016. That, to me, was the real validation of it, that the, the guys that come in the door wearing their, wearing their Eagles jerseys, I, I don't worry about them. We, we, they're on our side. <laughs> right away. So I don't worry about those guys. But the other people that are just theater goers or the other people that are kind of brought along with everybody else because, okay, everybody's gone, so okay, I'll go and sit through this. If, if at the end of the night, they are as moved by this story as the guy in the green jersey, then I feel like I've really succeeded as a, as a playwright because I've, you know, I've, I've made these people believe in a story and feel about a story that they had no feeling for an hour ago. But in, in that one hour's time, they so fully embrace the story of this little kid and his hero. Uh, and, it, uh, and it doesn't really even apply to football. And people say that all the time. You know, I thought, I thought this was going to be a football play, but it's not. And I said, no, it isn't. I mean, this could be anything. I mean, this guy could be a, a singer. This guy could be a writer. He could be anything. It's anybody that has a hero. He just happens to play football. But this play really isn't about football. It's about... It's about the love between two people and how that grows and enriches over the course of 40 or 50 years. That's really kind of what it's about. It's about, it's a story about hero worship and dreams coming true, which is something I think everybody can relate to. But he also didn't lose the Cowboys very often, or he wouldn't be a hero very long. No, no, and uh, he didn't, you know, one of, the, one of the unfortunate parts about Tommy's career is most of the time, most of his seasons were pretty bad teams. I mean, when he got to the Eagles, they were a bad team. Uh, they were a bottom feeder when he got to Philadelphia. Uh, and largely due to his play, they, they rose up to the, where the point they, they beat the Lombardi Packers in a championship game. But then shortly after that, the organization kind of fell apart, and he got traded. And then the end of his career, he kind of bounced around. He went from Philly to Dallas, and he went from Dallas to the Rams, and then he went from the Rams to the Falcons, and then he went from the Falcons to the Browns. And I, I really think that that's kind of why he got passed over by the Hall of Fame. You know, if, if a player spends half of his career kind of bouncing from one team to the other, people just say, oh, you know, yeah, he's just a, one of those. He's, he's a journeyman. 
uh, and they kind of lose sight of the fact of what this guy actually accomplished. And I think that's kind of what happened. You know, every time Tommy changed uniforms, it was kind of like he moved, in people's estimation, he moved further back. And my job was to try and just put the numbers in front of them and just say, will you look at what this guy accomplished? I know it was with a lot of different teams, but look at what this guy accomplished. Judge him on his merits, not on the teams he played for. And finally, finally, they listened. Ray, the number 25 is not retired by the Philadelphia Eagles. Right. And there's another well-known number 25 that, that wore it probably in the last few years. Right. You, you had an interesting idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. I wrote I wrote a piece for the NBC Sports website that I just put on. People can find it online now. Um, where I suggested <laughs> that internet people. Yeah, those internet <laughs> folks. Where I suggested um, that they retire the number and retire it for both players. You know, because McCoy McCoy deserves it. I mean, he's your all-time leading rusher. Broke the records that were set by you know Brian Westbrook and Steve Van Buren and Wilbert Montgomery. Some great players, and he outrushed all of them. So retiring his number is entirely appropriate. Your number one rusher probably should. Um, but if you're going to retire 25, you need to honor Tommy too. So I've always thought that Tommy's number should have been retired anyway. I mean, there aren't that many guys who are in the Hall of Fame that are in the Hall of Fame for what they did for the Eagles. You know, I mean, there's some guys, the Eagles, the Eagles claim a lot of Hall of Famers, but some of them just were, had, a, had a cup of coffee here. For example? You know, Richard Dent. The Eagles claim Richard Dent as a... James Lofton. You know, I mean, guys were great. I mean, great players. Absolutely right. Hall of Fame Ricky, credentials. Ricky, Ricky Waters is not. Ricky is not in the Hall of Fame. But, I mean, there are a lot of guys that kind of... Philadelphia was their last stop. Mm-hmm. You know, but they didn't really earn the Hall of Fame here. Right. If you looked at the guys who really earned the spot in the Hall of Fame for what they did for the Eagles, it's maybe a half a dozen guys. And Tommy's one of them. And I kind of hoped uh, that when he finally went in the Hall of Fame in 1998... I heard that the Eagles were going to honor him at halftime of one of the games. And I thought, oh, this is when they're going to retire his number. You know, they're going to halftime of the game, they're going to retire his number. And they didn't. I mean, they honored him, took a bow. And, you know, of course, being Tommy, he had his son come out on the field with him and throw him one last pass <laughs> that thankfully he caught. And, he, I mean, and he ran around the field with his grandchildren, and, but they didn't retire his number. And I was a little disappointed. But now, I mean, I think you have the perfect opportunity to retire number 25 and put two guys' names on it, and they both deserve it. It's, it's almost too good of an idea and too obvious for the Eagles to accept <laughs> because it's not their idea. Mm, yeah, could be. Could be, but I, I wanted to put it out there anyway uh, and at least plant the seed. And if they choose to do it, which I think they should, but if they choose to do it, great. You know, I don't need any and credit. I don't, I don't think Ray's going to be knocking on the door going, uh, what about me? No, don't I get? I don't, I don't need any credit for it. I, just, right. I would just like to see them do it because it's the right thing to do. Let me, let me go back, what, 20, uh, 30, some years ago when you're developing the relationship with, with Tommy and your mm-hmm. kid and you're going to camp every summer with your family. And how, how, how do you guys – keep in touch is it do you guys write letters postcards you know does your dad tell you you know you should write write a note to Tommy and see if he you know check in on him how how does that how does that exist for during his playing career during your college career during your you know young professional life well for his seven years with the Eagles we went to training camp every summer so those seven years we would take our our two-week family vacation up at Eagles training camp so those two weeks I was with him every day I would wait for him outside the locker room. He would come out. He would see me. He would hand me his helmet, and I would carry his helmet on, on the way to the practice field and back. So those two weeks were pretty much set. 
after he got traded away and then began bouncing around the league and then finally retired, we, were, we didn't have any contact at that time. We kind of reconnected later on when I became a sports writer in the city, and Tommy stayed in the area. He lived in King of Prussia. So, you know, every, every once or twice a year, there was always kind of a reason for me to call him up. Like, there would be, you know, the Eagles, like when the Eagles were going to the Super Bowl under Vermeil for the first time. You know, I called a bunch of the former players, the guys from the 1960 team, and just asked them, how do you feel seeing this team going for the championship? You know, that kind of stuff. So there were those occasions to kind of pick up the phone and call Tommy. Uh, I would see him at the Maxwell Club dinners and things like that. In all of that time, I never told him. I never had the conversation about Hershey. I mean, I never said to him, hey, listen, I was the little kid who used to carry your helmet. You must remember that. I, I never said that. I never said that. And so all of those years kind of passed, and we had a good relationship. He would see me. He knew who I was. But uh, I, never, I never provided the backstory. It wasn't until the Hall of Fame, and I really, really got, I really got involved in mounting the campaign to get him in. And finally, in 1998, when he did get in, and he knew that I had been sending out letters and calling people up and trying to build, get the bandwagon rolling, he asked me, he said, uh, I want you to be my presenter in Canton, which to me was, I mean, I just, it just blew me away. Because I, I surely thought, I surely thought he would pick one of his teammates. I surely thought he would pick Bednarik or he would pick Sonny Jurgensen. I mean, in a lot of people's minds, Jurgensen and McDonald, or, I mean, people, that's what they think of. You think Jer of Jurgensen? Jurgensen's the quarterback. Yeah, Jurgensen, I'm sorry. Sonny Jurgensen was the quarterback uh, on that team. And they were, I mean, they were like frickin' frack, you know. And, in fact, they had their own TV show called Jurgensen to McDonald. Uh, so I, I thought, and Sonny was a broadcaster down in Washington. So it made perfect sense. I mean, I, I didn't know if he wanted Chuck, but I thought certainly Sonny would be the perfect guy. Sonny would be the perfect guy. And he said, no. He said, I want you. I guess that's, that's part of the story, too, is, is that back at the beginning, he was the guy giving to me. He was the guy that was extending the arm of friendship. He was the guy that was handing me the helmet. He was the guy that was tolerating my nine-year-old nonsense. But then at the end, the little boy is in a position where he's able to give something back to his hero. And that's kind of what brings the circle to a close. And that's why, that's why I think it's a really special story. And that's why I think the people that come to the theater every night are so moved by it. Because I don't know of any other story like it. I think, I, think it is, I think it is an utterly unique story. I've never known of another Hall of Fame journey quite like that when the two guys kind of shared together. Uh, but it makes, it makes for wonderful theater, and people have been responding to it now for five years. That's incredible. Five-year run. Congratulations. That's, um, you know, hopefully five, ten, twenty more years, and it'll still be, still be in the mix. I think it still has life. I mean, we have theaters that are already talking to us about, about 2022 that are looking to bring it to that, including the theater in Hershey the Hershey Theater. We were up there a month ago talking to them, and I've always, I've always kind of hoped that that could happen. I, I always kind of hoped that this story could find its way back to Hershey, because that is, that is where it started. And they have a magnificent theater up there. And I always kind of hoped that one of these days I would love to bring Tommy and me back to Hershey. I mean, it would just be so fitting. Your, your Saturday morning co-host, you know, Glenn, mm -hmm. is an actor. Oh, sure he is. Does he ever harass you about why he's not in any of, why he's not in Tommy and me? Like, does he think he should be in the? <laughs> well, he actually does have a role uh, okay. in, in the sense that every year that we've done this play, he's hosted one of the talkbacks. Right, right. So right. he's going to be doing uh, Saturday night, uh, the 8 o'clock show on Saturday nice. night. And, uh, and he does a really good job of it. And actually, you know, Glenn and I have been doing the show together for about 20 years. 
I, I, I really didn't know him when they put us together. I mean, I kind of knew who he was, but he was at the Inquirer. I was at the Daily News. We certainly weren't friends. We were competitors, if anything. But it clicked, you know, it, it clicked. And we've been doing the show for 20 years. We've become really good friends. Our wives have become good friends. And to the point where when I wrote the play the first time, when I wrote the first rough draft of it, I had no idea whether it was any good or not. I really didn't. I mean, I, was, I had never tried this before. I thought, I, I'd let somebody read this, you know, just to give me an honest opinion. And I brought it to Glenn. He was the, he was the only person that saw it. And I, because I knew he'd be honest. I knew, we had the kind of relationship I knew he'd be honest. And I said, look, I, I wrote this play. He kind of knew the story of Tommy and me, in, basically. Mm-hmm. And I said, you kind of know the story, but I've written a play about it. And he said, a play? I said, yeah. And I, look, I don't know if it's any good, but I'd like you to read it and tell me what you think. And he read it, and he, you know, next day he saw me. He said, he said, that's really good. He said, that's really, really good. He said, I, I think you got something there. And that gave me the courage to actually bring it to a true theater company. And that's when, that's when we all got the whole thing, got the whole thing started. But, and, you know, I mean, his, him saying, yeah, I think this is a really good story, and I think it's well done, probably needs a little work, probably needs a little fine-tuning by a real, by a real playwright. But I think the story itself is so good, it'll absolutely work. And, you know, that kind of gave me the courage to go out and bring it to theater exile, and here we are. So, Ray, you've, you are a radio journalist. Mm-hmm. You're a TV journalist. You've been and still actually are a print journalist. Mm-hmm. And now you're a playwright as well. How do you, for, for sort of young, budding journalists out there, how do you compare those, those four? How do you look at it and say, is there one you enjoy more? If I say, take a month, is there one you choose over the other? I really, I really liked being a print journalist. I really liked writing for a newspaper, even though it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Meeting the daily deadline was really hard, and it never got easier for me. I, I was, in fact, one of, my, one of my books is a collection of my columns. And I gave it the title. I said, I called the book One Last Read, The Collected Works of the World's Slowest Sports Writer, which, which I was, I mean, without question. I mean, it, there are a lot of Super Bowl records that, over time, all of them will fall. I mean, every, you know, the Montana records, the Steve Young records, the Brady records, they'll all get broken at some point. But I can safely say that I hold a Super Bowl record that will never be touched. I was the last man out of the press box at 26 consecutive Super Bowls. <laughs> now, that, that is a record that will stand forever. That's a very Iron Man. Because you were sitting writing. You weren't, uh, weren't going to leave until the story I, was Because I, 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 I just took me forever it took me forever to write a story. And it drove the guys on my copy desk crazy. It drove my editor crazy. It drove my wife crazy. Both of my wives crazy. <laughs> Probably accounts for some of Is the streak still alive? No, well, yeah, I guess it's still standing. I mean, I, I finally, you know, stopped covering Super Bowls. But when I left, yeah, that was, you know, that was the record that not that everybody was shooting for. I don't know that anybody wanted to break it. But as far as I know, it still stands. <laughs> I, mean, it got, I mean, it got so bad. It got so bad that they used to set aside one press bus just for me. <laughs> because there would always be like the last, what they thought was the last bus, and there'd be the five or six other slowest guys who would be on there, and they would still be waiting an hour for me. And then they finally just decided, look, they call, they call it the Dinger bus. And they said, all right, we got all these buses, and then there's his bus. And whoever that poor driver was, he used to just have to sit outside the stadium and just wait we, for me to finish. And it was, yeah, it was usually when the sun was coming up. <laughs> oh, well, those are late games. I mean, I, let, let me just say, yeah, I, can, I can 100% relate to that because in my years covering the Eagles, I was the last photographer out of the photo room. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every game. And 
usually it was because I got my five or six photos that I knew they needed in for the print deadline mm-hmm. and then meticulously went through the 2,000 I had shot to make sure I got every photo I wanted for the online gallery. The, an online gallery, maybe 30 people would click through. Oh, I always, Certainly, I always read Young Kim's every online gallery. Young Kim, philly.com, he's my, and Maletti. Those are my Eagles. Great photographer. I know that right. my name didn't get in that list, so I appreciate it, Brian. Yeah, Great Philly photographer. photographer. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it, But, yeah, I mean, in the five years I covered the Eagles and in ten years I covered sports for a newspaper, yeah, it did not matter the game. I was the last one because I was meticulous. And, and I was the press box sweeper, so I may have swept you out of the press box or just waited around for our friends, uh, you know, uh, Ruben or, or Echol yep. or – you know, Frank Fitzpatrick or any one of those guys that say, you know, I got to be at work. Ray, you don't have to go home, <laughs> but you need to get out of this press box right yeah. now. Yeah, well, I... All yeah. the wings are gone, Ray. You should just go now. The I team needs to practice. You need to leave. <laughs> it's three days later. Yeah, I got locked in every stadium in the league in the course of my years of covering the NFL. Like, I, but I, I know the... I know the I know the way out of every stadium. Like, I, I know all the emergency exits. I know all the back doors. I had to learn them because I truly did get locked in every single stadium. And they would just assume at some point, well, everybody must be gone by now. And then just flip out the lights and lock the doors. And it was just up to me to find my way out. I got locked in Akron's basketball stadium in college <laughs> and had to call the police to get me out. That's like getting locked in is hard, though, because there's always emergency exits, they right? Did, they, they had, like, <laughs> did chained they chain the door. They had chained the door. That's a fire hazard. It is That's a fire hazard, but dangerous. if you think the building's empty, you're going to chain it shut. Ray, mm-hmm. Ray, can I ask you about NFL films? Sure. So you said you wrote scripts, and I think NFL films and, and the HBO, NFL and HBO, when, right. you know, in the Harry Callis and before that, the Facenda. Facenda. Would you say the NFL films helped build, like, was one of the major popularity forces for the NFL? No question. No question. That was why I think that that Ed Sable uh, and then his son Steve Sable should have been in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at when NFL films had its when when NFL when pro football had its surge of popularity. It was in the mid-60s, and that was when NFL Films was created. That was when the Sables created the company. Because what they did was they allowed people to see pro football in a way they couldn't see any other sport. NFL Films took people inside the game in a way that no other sport could or, or ever, you know, ever would. Cinematic almost. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was absolutely like, it was absolutely like making movies. I mean, Mr. Sable, Ed Sable, the father... His approach to it was we're going to make we're going to cover football the way Hollywood makes movies and that's what we're going for, and the the very first the very first big project NFL Films did was a documentary on on Vince Lombardi called Lombardi and it was a one hour special, and Mr. Sable had this idea and it was the '60s and the Packers were everything, and Mr. Sable went to Vince Lombardi and said you know. We have this company, NFL Films, and we want to do a one-hour show about you. And, and Vince, of course, initially, no, 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 I don't, I don't want, what, you want cameras in the locker rooms? No, 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 get out of here. And so Mr. Sable kept coming back and kept coming back. And finally, what he said to him, he said, he said, Coach, he said, if you let us do this, we will make you the John Wayne of pro football. <laughs> and he said, he said he saw Lombardi, all of a sudden this little flicker was in his eyes, and he said, oh, Okay, and because he knew, Mr. Sable was really smart. He knew once he got Lombardi on board, 
then everybody would fall in line. Right. If, if Lombardi bought into NFL films, then what were the other coaches going to say? So he had to land Lombardi first, and he did. And he did that special, and it was tremendous. It got huge ratings. And NFL films just grew from there. But you know, if you look at the, when, the surge of, of popularity of pro football, that explosion that in the 60s that finally led to the Super Bowl and led to the merger of the two leagues and, and the NFL becoming kind of what it is today, it absolutely – it actually parallels – the arrival and the growth of NFL films. I mean, NFL films took pro football and just put it in a place that it never could have been otherwise. And the work that those videographers, I mean, the, the editing and storytelling is phenomenal, but the work those videographers do on the sidelines, it just absolutely blows me away. You know, as a, as a photographer down there, you know, you've got kind of one shot at any given time right. to get the play as it's happening. And it is amazing the consistency at which those photographers nail the shot always it's almost like they know the play it it really is and like i I mean i'll tell you as as a photographer you do the longer you cover a team you do kind of learn the tendencies and you can you can kind of predict okay i think the ball is going to go over here and maybe you've got a five percent greater chance than you know flipping a coin that you're right out for the other team but but their success rate has to be over 80% i mean it's crazy to me the number of times that i will see you know three four days after a game that they've got the shot in slow motion and the catch and the hit and the whatever it just they've always got it it's it that to be one of those shooters is you're the the cream of the crop and they're the and, best. and they've earned it they're the best for sure and Mr. Sable Mr. Sable's motto was to everybody was finish like a pro was what he said every time you went out on an assignment it's a finish like a pro and what that meant was that you shoot Every single play. You, you, you don't ever take a play off. You don't ever, with a minute to go, say, ah, this game's over and start packing your stuff up. You don't. You finish like a pro. And the classic example of that is the miracle of the Meadowlands. That play, I mean, that game is over. Literally, TV is rolling the credits <laughs> over the, you know, If you look at the, the, they're rolling the credits on that play. Everybody thinks the game's over. The stadium's half empty. People are leaving. But the NFL film's cameraman, the field cameraman, a guy named Phil Tuckett, he's, he's shooting. He's shooting because you never know. And Joe should have just kneeled down, right? Ball, roll, ball rolls loose. Herm Edwards picks it up. And, you know, the reward was that he ran right to Phil. Right, right. I mean, right, he, he right. didn't run away. I mean, Phil's reward for being the good cameraman was the play. He, he's shooting, and a play comes right to him. So that shot that everybody has seen 10,000 times by now was shot because the cameraman did his job right, right. to the end. And likewise, how many years later, Deshaun Jackson's punt return? Same right. thing. Same thing. All you do, just punt, he's just going to punt it out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fine. And then right to him, and there you go. Mm-hmm. Tom Coughlin almost had an aneurysm. I think Tom Coughlin <laughs> may have had an aneurysm. I think he did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the other thing, too, to have the shots of Tom Coughlin on the sideline, right? That someone was conscious of, I'm going to film the giant sideline for this. And then, you know, you can just read his lips as he throws his headset off. And... Uh, but again, that's that's what makes NFL films the best of what they do. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I have a real well, I, I have a real personal connection to the company because I worked there for 13 years. But I have a real personal connection to it because my son is now a cameraman for NFL films, uh, and the play that people in Philadelphia will always remember, of course, the Philly Special. Uh, and my son was the cameraman who was shooting the Nick Foles wire that day. Wow. So his his assignment that day was he mics up Nick Foles, puts the microphone in his pads, all that stuff. And then from the time Foles comes out of the tunnel for pregame warm-up 
to the end of the game, all he does is he follows Nick Foles. So he's, he's listening in through his headset to everything that's being said, and he's shooting everything and recording it. And so after the game, when I saw him, Good job. Uh, I said, <laughs> no, I had no idea. I right. mean, we all saw Philly special, but he said to me after the game, he said, you know, he said, Foles called that play. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I, I was listening. I mean, he was, I, he was my wire. And he said, he, he's the one that says to Peterson, why don't we do Philly Philly? Right. And Peterson, who's, who's clearly thinking something else, says, yeah, okay, let's do it. So I said, really? It was Foles? He said, it was Foles' idea. So the fact that that becomes part of the story, and we've all seen it, is only due to NFL films. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not shot and if that's not recorded – then it's a typical sideline conversation, and you figure to this day that Doug Peterson called that play. But the fact that you see exactly how it goes down, that Foles is the one that suggests it, the coach decides, you know what, if he believes in this play, you know what, yeah, go do it. I mean, it, it enhances, I mean, we'd always celebrate the play. We'd made up the T-shirts, we'd be, you know, naming drinks and bars. Ta- after. Tattoos. Yeah, I mean, all of that's <laughs> all diagrams. the tattoos. I mean, it would have been a great moment anyway. But now that you see the how the full context of, the, of, of how it played out, um, it makes it that much better. I think, you know, the other thing for me as a, as a Ravens fan from an NFL films perspective is the, the relationship between Lamar Jackson and John Harbaugh that I wouldn't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. That the, the number of times Harbaugh will, it, it, and I know he's doing it so like he can justify going for it himself, but the number of times he will ask Lamar Jackson, do you want to go for it, knowing full well what the answer is going to be. Of course. Right? But, you know, you just see that relationship of, you, you want to go for it? You wanna, and, Hell yeah, coach, I want to go for it. All right, let's go for it. You know, mm-hmm. like that. When's a quarterback ever going to be like, right? No, no I think we should punt. <laughs> I guarantee well, quarter, you. NFL quarterback, let alone a high school quarterback, yeah. going to say, like, we should just take a knee. Fourth and 29, <laughs> that quarterback wants to go for it 100 out of 100 times. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my 11, well, my 13 years at NFL Films going through, going through miles and miles and miles of footage and miles and miles and miles of wirings, I can tell you that that is a 100 percent that, the, that <laughs> if, if, if it's ever that the coach and the quarterback are ever having that discussion and the coach said you want to go for it, 100 percent the quarterback's going to say yeah. And if you have if you ever have a guy that says no, he's you not your guy. He's not your guy anyway. Not your guy. Maybe it maybe it exists. I have seen the kick about 400 times, but that Justin Tucker kick, I want to hear what was being said in that moment because after the fourth and 19 completion. Tucker, there's like seven seconds left, and Tucker starts walking out on the field. So, like, he thinks he's going to kick this 66-yarder already, and then they run another play, they don't complete it, and then he, he does come out and kick it. But just I want to know, after the 4th and 19, like, what was being said on that sideline? And I haven't seen it yet, but I don't doubt that it's, like, in there somewhere, Then they're waiting to roll it out when they've got, you know, something cut. It exists. I'm sure it exists, and you'll see it in time. You'll probably see it in the Ravens highlight film at the right. end of this year, would be yeah. my guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the thing. You, those end of year highlight reels, you know, because you've seen the different clips, but you always get that little bit more in there that you're like, oh, I want to watch this again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really the the true beauty of NFL films is that you can watch the whole game on Sunday, but when the highlight replays on Wednesday, you'll watch it all over again, even though you know what the big plays are, even though you know the outcome. 
because NFL Films is going to show you the game in a way you never saw it before. They're going to I mean, ra- they're going to layer in that radio call. Right. They're going to layer in the radio call from the losing team. They're going to Spanish yeah. one. Yeah, like even better, like even more passion. Like let's give it all. Yeah, my favorite is uh, is is Timothy Burke, who used to be an editor at Deadspin and and a fellow Ohio Bobcat. Uh, he will like as games are going on. He'll be like as called on Russian television or as <laughs> called on German television. He'll get these these random cuts of broadcasts in other countries, and it is really funny to hear how other languages treat. Well, I assume there's Germans that like a good NFL football game. I mean, there used sure. to be NFL football Europe. in Europe. Yeah, numbers. Uh, the Waffle League. They have done a number of times the opening of the Super Bowl highlight film. They've used this three or four times. They, you can't use it every year because it kind of loses its impact. But over time, three or four times, they have opened the highlight film, cutting to the various broadcasts of the foreign countries, uh, si- all signing on, the, the German call, the, the Spanish call, the French call. It's a very cool way to start the Super Bowl highlight film. They've done it a number of times. So I think maybe as we talk about the Super Bowl, you know, the kind of the, that quintessential moment for any player – what what is kind of a moment from your career that just hangs with you that you you saw it live, and that is the thing that you just always go back. Like for me, covering the snowball as a, one, I will never forget how cold I was being on the sideline because we weren't you know it was we're supposed to get an inch right or flurries and we got a foot was not remotely prepared for it. I'll never forget how cold I was or or photographing that game. But you know, for you, what moment is it in your long Eagles coverage career that just is that moment for you? Super Bowl. Super Bowl 52. That was it. Having been through it before a couple of times, the losses, the Vermeil loss in New Orleans to the Raiders, and then Andy's loss to the Patriots in Jacksonville. Having been there and been part of it all and then seen it all just kind of crumble, to actually see the least likely of them all, that this team with a backup quarterback is going to go up against Tom Brady and the Patriots, and that's the one that they win. Yeah, that was that's the one for sure. And, of course, Philly Special just adds, adds to the lure. But the thing that I, that I remember about it, as much as the game was just the, the tremendous Philadelphia representation in that. I mean, the, in the city of Minnesota, I mean, the Eagles fans outnumbered the Patriots 8-1 to one at the game, clearly. It really did sound and feel like an Eagles home game. It really did. I mean, you would have never – you didn't even hear the Patriot people for the most part. I mean, it was an Eagles crowd. And totally by coincidence, they, the, the pregame music acts actually had Philadelphia uh-huh. ties. I mean, Pink sang the national anthem, and, she's, and she's from Doylestown. Yep. Uh, and they also had, before, this, before the game, they had the singing of God Bless America, which was done by Leslie Odom Jr., who is, in fact, a Philadelphian. Mm-hmm. So you had these two Philadelphia-area performers, and nobody arranged it. It just so happened that that's the way it was. Fate and there was just lining seemed, up, even honest, in the pregame songs. No, honestly, it really <laughs> did. It really had that feel. And, and that whole run of that season, the whole run of that team, it, it all just seemed to tie together. It just felt like this is their year. I mean, all the injuries they had, the players they lost, they lose Jason Peters, they lose Wentz, they lose, they lose Hicks, the linebacker. Every week they would lose a guy, and they would just keep rolling. And then they start putting on the dog masks and playing up the underdog thing. And they get to the playoffs, and they beat Atlanta and then just crush Minnesota. That was fun. And I just felt that like – That was a party. First half, it, the party was on. And Minnesota was <laughs> riding so high going into that game after their their own miracle, right? And right. they just deflate that. Well, they, they came in and ripped off like a 90-yard touchdown drive. in the. I said, oh, God, this is going to be a long night. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think they they got it past the Eagles' fifty yard line for the rest of the game. It was like the pick six, and then there was well, another. Well, there was the Patrick Robinson play that totally changed the momentum of the game. And once the Eagles got once the Eagles got that and got a lead, then they just buried them. And I had no doubt, none. I mean, I don't bet. I've never bet. I never would bet. But I would have bet anything that the Eagles were going to win the Super Bowl. I no, mean, I, the I underdog hear- thing. The underdog thing. I mean, I knew it, but it almost it almost fit. And that's why it's very funny when we were at NBC. We were in the we were in the studio, and the Eagles were the second game that day in the championship. The earlier game was New England Jacksonville for the AFC Championship, and all the other guys in the studio, all the te- all the techs, the cameramen, and all they're all rooting like crazy for Jacksonville because they think, oh, this will be easy. Right. We get Jacksonville, and I said, I don't want Jacksonville. I don't want Jacksonville. If the Eagles are going to go to the Super Bowl, and I think they're going to the Super Bowl, I think they're going to beat Minnesota. I don't want to play Jacksonville. You want your money's worth. I, I want to play. I want to play the <laughs> Patriots because if you're an Eagles fan and you've waited your whole life for them to win a Super Bowl, and you've been putting up with all the nonsense, every office in town they always have like a one big mouth cowboy fan. Right. You know, every office has one, and you've been putting up with his guff all all year. And how would you like to win the Super Bowl and then you go in on Monday and say, "How'd you like that, huh?" Eagles are Super Bowl champs and say, yeah, big deal. You beat the Jaguars. You know, <laughs> no, no way. I don't want that. If your Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl, I don't want to beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, okay? <laughs> I want to beat the New England Borderline Patriots. Borderline expansion team. And I felt like, and I, I really was that sure that it didn't matter who they were going to play. They were going to find a way to win. And I didn't want that to be over Jacksonville. If they were going to win that game, I wanted them to beat the best. And they did. I t- I'm 100%. So I, I covered the Eagles until that season. I left right before the season started and came here. And after about the fourth game of the season, I was texting with my friends and said they're going to win the Super Bowl. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's week four. And I'm like, I'm telling you right now, one, I'm not there. (laughs) So clearly they're going to do it. But two, it feels like it just you you could feel it. Something feels different about this team. And even when Wentz went down, they were like, yeah, they're going to win the Super Bowl. I'm like, yeah, they are. I'm telling you. I'm getting that feeling this year. About the Eagles? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to tell you right now, the Eagles may not win another game until December. Well, I think that probably that moment that you had that feeling was probably when Elliott kicked the, uh, the game-winning field. The when he was carried off the field, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, watching it with, I was watching it with Seth Joyner in the, in the control booth, and he kicks this 61-yard field goal, and Seth said, and Seth being no Pollyanna by any <laughs> means, says, you know what? This might be the year. And I said, Seth, it's week four, man. I said, they're life and death to beat the Giants, for God's sakes. He said, I'm just telling you from experience that stuff like that don't just happen. Okay, stuff, stuff like that, this guy who's been here for 15 minutes kicks the longest field goal in team history. That, that, that's part of a bigger story. And he said, I, I was on two teams that went to Super Bowls. I won a Super Bowl. There's always that kind of galvanizing moment somewhere along the line when everybody senses that something special's happening. And he said, this might be it. And I, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, eh, I don't know. But it turned out he was right. I mean, I really do think that it kind of planted the seed. And kind of what you were feeling, I think they were feeling. And they rode it all the way to Minneapolis. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can't scientifically quantify it. But it, uh, there really is a thing sometimes with certain teams that you can just feel. And maybe it's just, you know, it's placebo. They believe the, uh, they're, they're, you know, unstoppable because they're hitting 61-yard field goals to win games. And, and they buy their own hype. But... You could just, I, like I said, I week four and people thought I was crazy, and then I, I wish I'd put money on it. Well, I, I've, 
I, I've always people always use the term team chemistry or you know, grit I mean, or something, you know, right? Yeah, the, the, chemistry is a chemistry is a word that gets thrown around all the time. This team has great chemistry, and if you ask somebody, okay, define it for me. I don't know. I mean, they got great chemistry. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know. They look like I, they're having fun out there yeah, together. But I, I think that, uh, to me, the idea of team chemistry, it's a lot like that Supreme Court justice who said about pornography. When I he know said, it when I see it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't <laughs> define it, but I know it when I see it. Team chemistry is like that. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And in that Eagles locker room that year, you saw it. In, in a way, I had never seen it before just guys pulling together and the way Peterson connected with that team and the players to him, you know, and the resolve that they had when Wentz went down. I mean, and Wentz was having, I mean, I know what people think about Wentz now, but at that, that year he was magical and, and he goes down and now you're going to put Nick Foles in there and the fans by and large kind of said, Oh God, there it goes. Typical Eagles. You have, they have it all gone and now look what happens. The players didn't feel that way. And I remember I, I I remember Peterson's press conference the day after the Rams game when he got the, he got the diagnosis that, okay, worst, worst fears realized, torn back. ACL, he's done oh, for the oh, year. I thought it was, oh, back was two years ago, right? Yeah. yeah. And he, he, he says, you know, he announces, yes, it's back, and he's knees torn, he's done for the year, he's going to have to have surgery. And you could just feel in the room, the, I just feel the air kind of sucked out of the room. And Peterson says, this is not going to stop us. You know, I feel terrible for Carson Wentz. He's the MVP of this league, and he's a big reason why we are where we are. But he's not the only reason. And he said, he said, there's a really good football team in that room over there. And this team is going to pull together, and we're going to rally behind Nick Foles, and we're going to play good football. And I, I was there, and I thought, that's real leadership. That's, that is really the definition of leadership. Uh, that at that moment that he kind of sensed where this thing was going, and he just grabbed it and he pulled it back. And the players absolutely rallied behind Nick, and by the time they got to the postseason, there wasn't anybody going to stop him. I mean, it was really something to see. So you asked me, of all the years I've been covering this team, which is now more than 50, what's the moment that stands out? It's, it's, it's Minnesota. It's Minnesota. Be, you know, the, that moment when the game ends and the confetti starts to fall and you see up on the scoreboard the thing blinking saying Super Bowl champs, Philadelphia Eagles, yeah, it was pretty special. I, when you said, you know, you and Seth Joyner at, at game four, I, was, I think I watched the Super Bowl twice that night and then again in the morning just to make sure it actually happened mm -hmm. because I was convinced it didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, this – Somebody pranking us? Is this like some sort of weird wag the dog, uh, fake Truman, like, Truman Show TV show? Yeah. Like they went through a lot to produce <laughs> a fake Super Bowl win. Wow, I know the involved has a lot of money, but same guys who fake the moon landing, faked this Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I, I went to the end. I, I chose the NFC Championship game to mm -hmm. go to as a fan. I said, you know what? That that was my Super Bowl, and whatever happens, happens. And it was a good time, and it was a route, and we could, you know relax and party and like not be stressed and I sent my parents to the Super Bowl and they stayed on my one of my college friends couch so you have two 59 year old people staying on their son's college friends couch in Minneapolis one and a half blocks from the uh the stadium I was going to call it the Metrodome but it's <laughs> clearly wasn't the right what was it called the that RC? one fell apart remember? what was it I can't even remember the name of the um uh some bank yeah some U.S. Bank, bank maybe U.S. Bank yeah yeah, yeah. you have until Sunday the 17th of October 
2021. Don't listen to this in future years and wonder <laughs> whether Tommy Me is playing at the Delworth Theater Company. But Tommy Me is playing right now at the Delworth Theater Company. They're back. They've said no COVID's going to stop us. We're getting this thing going again. And tickets are just $29. They can be purchased by visiting DelawareTheater.org right now. Thank you so much for Great. spending this time with us. Thank you for uh, everything, you know, for Temple University is a great ambassador for the for my school and for the Philadelphia sports fans and for people that want to listen to sensible sports talk radio with with an analytical edge. Nobody does the homework or has the knowledge that that you have. Well, so thank I you. I appreciate very much. that. Yeah, it's my thank pleasure. you very much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you guys. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Ray.